Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Private First Class Jack Lucas, and this is a pretty cool story. This is the Lucas is the youngest Medal of Honor recipient from the Second World War, and I believe he is the youngest Marine recipient of the Medal of Honor throughout history. So before we dive into the actions and the battle and kind of the history there, I think it's worth spending a minute to talk about Lucas. So he's 17 years old when he lands on Iwo Jima in February of 1945. Now that's possible because in World War II, you could enlist with a parent's or guardian's signature at the age of 17. Now, that's when you can sign the paperwork. You still would have to go through basic training. You'd still have to get to a unit. You'd still have to transport. So technically, it might have been possible to see combat at 17. Legally, maybe is the way to say it. But it would have been a challenge to, to I mean, if you sign that paperwork on your 17th birthday, it is definitely within reason that before the one-year mark, you are in combat. But maybe this is a weird way to say it, but the stars kind of have to align for that to happen. That's asking a lot. That's not the risk that Lucas isn't willing to take that risk. And at the age of 14, forges his parents' signature to say that he's 17 um, and enlists in the Marine Corps. I believe he might have even been 13 when he got that signature and or presented those documents and completed basic at 14. That's hard to get my head around. I I don't understand how somebody looks at a 14-year-old and says that's that's probably he's probably old enough. He's probably uh he's probably 17 or 18, I guess 17, not 18. I did read that he was 5'8 and 180. That'll probably contribute to the fact, but it's just hard to I can't see that happening today. I can't see a 14-year-old successfully um, manipulating the system, if you will. I'm sure there's a better way to say that, to get into the military at 17 or 18. It just seems like there's so many more checks, or maybe we have better records today. I don't know. Or maybe it still would happen. But nonetheless, Lucas is not willing to risk missing the war, is kind of the way it's presented. He wants to get out there and wants to get after it. So at the age of 14, he completes basic training is sent off to a handful of different units and he's in trouble from the get-go. I'm reading stories about he gets in trouble for drinking in the barracks. It's a 14-year-old. Fine, call him 15, 16 at some point. Gets in trouble for drinking in the barracks. I mean, he sounds like an old man. He sounds like a grizzled old veteran and he can't get a driver's license. Punches an MP who tries to take his beer away in the barracks, that kind of stuff. So um, not a model Marine. Uh, as he's getting started here. But what it, it starts to look like is maybe more of a combat Marine. And we see that a lot throughout military history, people that work very, very well in a combat environment and maybe struggle in garrison or training. Nonetheless, by 1945, Lucas is starting to get a little antsy. And the writing's on the wall. The war in Europe is winding down. And he is concerned that he's going to miss out on the war. So in January of 1945, he jumps on a troop transport. Again, I'm going to bring up things that are very hard for me to recognize how that could happen 
today, but maybe that's just it. Maybe they just couldn't happen today, or maybe they could, and I'm just ignorant to how this would uh, would actually take place. But in January of 1945, he just walks off the base. He's in Hawaii now. That helps his cause and gets on a troop transport. He loads a troop transport and is a, is a stowaway. He's not on the manifest. He's not, there's nobody looking after him. I, I can't imagine he's got any amount of gear. He doesn't belong to anybody there. His unit in Hawaii marks him as an unauthorized absence. He's, he's away without leave. Um, they start to go down that path of, of disciplining him should he ever show back up. And then just a couple weeks before this troop transport, of all of the troop transports he's going to get on, he gets on one that's headed for Iwo Jima. They're carrying the 26th Marines. And he wants to get into combat. He got on the right troop transport. And I'm, you know, I'm sure he's not guessing. He talked to somebody. He was probably in a bar and heard some Marine. I mean, it wouldn't have been crazy to figure out this is the ship I want to get on if I want to get to the front. He makes himself known um, shortly before the battle. And rather than being court-martialed, he somehow gets pulled into um, Charlie Company, part of the 1st Battalion, 26th Marines, as they get ready to land on the beaches. Now, they land on Iwo Jima on February 19th. Lucas turns 17 on February 14th. So during this stowaway period, he's 16 years old. And when he hits the beaches on Iwo Jima, he is 17 years and five days old. Young. So let's back off and talk Iwo Jima for a minute. So Iwo Jima is going to be one of the last major battles in the war. Remember, because the the European, the, the conflict in, in Europe is winding down, and we're going to see Iwo Jima and, and Okinawa as the two last major offensive land battles in the Pacific theater. The battle of Iwo Jima will take place for about, about five weeks from February 19th to March 26th of 1945. And Iwo Jima is just a tiny little Island, like eight square miles max. It's small. There's no indigenous population. Interesting place. I mean, this is a, it is by the time the Americans land in February, it is a fort in the middle of the Pacific, which is different than some of these other islands we've landed at. You know, we've got some extreme examples like the Philippines where it's absolutely populated. There is a, a very close ally of the United States and the Philippine people are on that island. We want to go back. We want to liberate the Philippine people from the Japanese empire. Similar story on Guam. Okinawa is a little more gray is maybe the easiest way to say it, or maybe the most delicate way to say it. But the Okinawans were not, did not consider themselves Japanese. And, but there were, there was a massive amount of civilian populace on that Island. So combat on Okinawa had a different taste than a lot of other places. Iwo Jima was just a pure fight. Now, for better or for worse, for you know, better for the potential civilians that are going to be there. If, if a civilian can make the opportunity to, or make the choice to not be on a battlefield, not have their island be a battlefield, then that's a win. But is it better or worse, easier or harder, if you are the defenders or if you are the attackers? I don't know. Because everything has its own challenge. And in the Second World War, we were not super discriminatory on our tactics. So we couldn't be in some sense. Our bombs were not precise enough to only hit 
the munitions factory and not hit the school next door. We, it wasn't, that wasn't within our capabilities. The artillery was not precise enough to only hit the headquarters and not the, the civilian structure next door. So, um, I don't know. Interesting to think about that though. Is it easier or harder attacking an Island that has, or doesn't have a civilian population? And I'm not, I'm not sure. I think at the end of the day, everybody would rather fight where there's not civilians because then nobody has that on their conscience should something go, um, go poorly. But nonetheless, I'm getting side railed there. Battle of Iwo Jima, about a five week fight. And why is Iwo Jima important? It's in the middle of nowhere. It is in the middle of the Pacific. And if you go to Google Earth or Google Maps, whatever, type in Iwo Jima on a map and, and, and start zooming out, you know how many zooms out you have to do before you can even see anything else? I mean, there's nothing around it. But it's not what's around it. It's kind of the path that it sits in. See, throughout the war in the Pacific, really starting in December of 1941 with the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, we have this linear movement from east to west that is designed to culminate with landings on the Japanese mainland to end this conflict. That is in the mind of all the military planners, the, strate- the strategists, the, um, the political elite. Like that, that's it. We're going to move across. We're going to invade Japan at some point. And we have to get close enough to do that. So we have to have staging bases. We have to – the Pacific is vast – we have to start moving enough men, material, equipment, aircraft, tanks, everything within striking distance of Japan before that inevitable assault will take place, right? Up until, really up until August of 1945, when we drop atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the plan is 100% to invade the Japanese mainland. So that in turn means that islands like Iwo Jima are important. As we're moving east to west, the United States starts, you know, we have kind of two. We we move through the Central Pacific and through the South Pacific. The South Pacific is going to be things like the Solomons, Guadalcanal, New Guinea, New Britain, New Ireland, a lot of those campaigns. Through the Central Pacific, you're going to see the Marshall Islands campaign like Tarawa um, and Macon Island. Then you're going to see as we take those islands and establish bases, establish airfields, harbors, forward staging locations for munitions and troops and and repairs of aircraft, then we can kind of take another step forward. And these are really big steps. These are like 1600 mile steps. But the next step after the Marshall Island campaign is going to be moving into the Marianas. That's a really, really big move in the war, taking the Marianas. The Marianas, Saipan, Guam, Tinian. And from these air bases now in the Marianas, specifically Tinian, we're going to start being able to bomb mainland Japan from uh, airfields in these locations. Tinian famously will be used to drop the atomic bombs on Japan. So it's, it's within range of the Japanese mainland for bombers. But there's nothing between the Marianas. There's nothing American held between the Marianas and Japan. So that means that these long-range, high-altitude bombers have a long flight. And there's a couple major issues which bring... Um, a couple reasons why Iwo Jima is all of a sudden top of mind for both sides. It helps if bombers have fighter escorts. They're not nimble. They're not agile. Their goal is to stay on a level set, um, fly straight, fly accurate, and get over a target and be able to hold their 
position to release those bombs and strike their target. It doesn't do a lot of good if they're having to do evasive maneuvers over the target or if they get lost or if they get su- So a common use of aircraft in the Second World War is to have fighter escorts with your bombers. And the fighters take on the enemy defensive fighters that are trying to shoot down the bombers. They can distract those folks. They can distract the anti-aircraft cannons. They can attack the anti-aircraft batteries as needed to allow those bombers the maximum opportunity to come in and strike their targets. But fighters have a, have a smaller fuel tank, which means a shorter range. And fighters can't range from the Marianas all the way to the Japanese main islands. They can do part of it. And then, of course, we've got aircraft carriers at various places in the Pacific that can also help. But it, it's leaving the bombers exposed over mainland Japan. And that's not ideal. At least we can hit the mainland, but it's not ideal. So Iwo Jima positioned almost exactly between the Marianas on a straight line as well. Iwo Jima between the Marianas and mainland Japan. It's big enough to hold an airfield. In fact, it has one, maybe two by the time the Marines land there. Airfields there that certainly can support fighters. And it's far enough away from Japan that it would allow the bombers to fly from Tinian to pick up their fighter escort at Iwo Jima, move over mainland Japan and come back. So item number one for the United States, why it's important, fighter escorts over mainland Japan. Item number two, if a bomber gets hit or... um, has engine problems or anything at all, they've got to make this massive trip all the way back to Tinian. So what they're doing often is something that's called ditching at sea, which is kind of what it sounds like. They're ditching their aircraft at sea. It's incredibly dangerous. Um, It's very easy for the plane to crash land and kill the crew. It's easy for the crew to drown. It's easy for nobody to find the crew. I mean, it's, 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 it's a really, really crappy situation. I mean, I guess the alternative, it's better than going down maybe over Japan and ending up in a POW camp, maybe. But ditching at sea is not like a, a positive thing at all. We're losing a lot of aircraft. We're losing men. Um, if we could just have some place where they could land midway, that might help. Iwo Jima is midway. Iwo Jima might be just right for damaged bombers to be able to limp out of their bombing raid back and land on that island. Now, on the other side, it's a critical island for the Japanese because it serves as kind of an early warning beacon. As these bombers are flying in to uh, bomb their mainland, they have fighters taking off and scout planes taking off from Iwo Jima that provide early warning. That allows time for their aircraft back home to get up in the air and meet the bombers over the ocean instead of waiting for them to get over, over their targets in Japan. So, that's a really important part for Japan. They're not, this is not just some, this is not a matter of they don't want the Americans to have it because it would make it easier for our bombers. It's going to make it harder for them if they lose it. So both sides are very, very interested in holding this eight square mile island that is really just a volcano with no civilian population on it. But by the time it really enters the crosshairs, for the American military in February, well, in 1945, but in 1944, really, it's been on the radar for a while. But when they get ready to land in February of 1945, the result is inevitable. Not something I think that would have changed how people landing on that beach would have felt, but the Japanese were not able at that point in the war to 
effectively reinforce or stop an assault on one of these islands. The American power, land, sea, and air power in the Central Pacific at this time was likely not something the Japanese could have stopped. So as American forces land on Iwo Jima on February, on February 19th, 1945, after days and weeks and months even of aerial and naval bombardment, the outcome is pretty well guaranteed, but the Japanese are going to make the U.S. pay for every square inch. They do that by digging quite a few tunnels across the island. They they put in, um, rather than trying to stop the Americans on the beach, as we see in a lot of other islands, and we, we certainly see um, in the European theater, the Japanese are going to scatter their defenses all across Iwo Jima and connect them via tunnels. So when these air and naval bombardments kick off, they're not really going to be very effective, if like at all. I'm not sure they did hardly anything. And it's going to make it very challenging because the Americans are never going to really be able to push through a line and break that line of defense. Like, again, to use, let's talk Omaha Beach. At some point when the Americans pushed up over the bluff and we secured that beachhead, that was it. The major, major defensive network of the Atlantic Wall was defeated right there. There was still a lot of fighting, of course, but on Iwo Jima, the entire island is a battlefield everywhere. There are machine gun nests dug in in obscure places. There are trenches dug on in, in locations where nobody would think there'd even be a fight, but there is going to be a fight inevitably, and it's going to be a nasty, deadly fight because there's trenches in some weird spot on the side of a hill. So... It ends up being a very, very costly battle for the United States, very, very costly for Japan. It's drug out again over about five weeks. All in, there'd be 6,800 Americans killed and between seventeen and 18,000 Japanese killed in the defense of the island. Now, to take it back to Jack Lucas, PFC Jack Lucas, he lands on the 19th and by the 20th, so he survives the first day, which saw, I want to say about 2,000 Americans killed or wounded. It was a pretty devastating first day on the beaches. And one of the challenges on those beaches is the intelligence gathered beforehand was that the beaches were suitable for landing. We'll use that term. Now, but sand isn't sand. There's different types of sand. And you know that, right? You've walked on beaches where the sand is hard and you could almost run on it or drive a car. It makes it really easy to move. It's just a little bit more challenging maybe than hard packed dirt. But that's sand. You also have sand when you move into the dunes. Maybe it's the same beach, just in a different direction. And every step you take, your foot sinks down six inches. Try running that. Try running in that with a heavy pack. What the Marines hit on Iwo Jima is black volcanic ash. Very, very fine. And they can't get their footing. They're sliding. They're slipping. As they try to move up the, uh, an embankment right on the beach, they're slipping and sliding through the, the sand. They can't dig in because it's such loose material. So they can't really dig a foxhole, which is a problem. Now, it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's a problem on a beach that's, that's being covered with machine guns, mortars, and artillery because you can't dig in, can't get to a, a foxhole-type position. But on the other hand, it's soft enough that it is kind of absorbing some blasts from grenades and artillery and mortars and so on. So... I don't think it's anywhere near being in the positive category, but there are some 
positive attribute attributes maybe is the way to say it. I think in retrospect, we would have preferred that the sand was not that condition, but it might have saved Jack Lucas's life. So Jack and his guys are on patrol. They're, he and three other Marines are moving through some of these trenches that the Japanese have dug when they come across 11 Japanese soldiers. And in the quick, close-range firefight, the Japanese are in another trench just next door, kind of parallel trench systems, which is common. And quick engagement kicks off. Lucas supposedly gets one round out of his rifle before it jams, which is that's when that's when rifles jam, right, is when you don't need them to. So he quickly takes a knee to, um, to fix the jam, and at that point sees an enemy grenade come over the top and land in this trench with he and his, his other three guys. Without hesitation, Lucas yells grenade, jumps past his guys, grabs the grenade, and shoves it down into this volcanic ash sand and covers it with his body. He's the only one who saw the grenade. His other guys, had he not done this, the grenade would have just gone off and likely killed all four. But as he's laying there on top of the grenade, split seconds, remember, split seconds, a second grenade lands right next to him. So he grabs that one and pulls it underneath his body as well. So now, as his three fellow Marines are engaging the Japanese soldiers in close combat, Lucas finds himself with his hands dug down in the dirt, in the the volcanic ash, holding two grenades and covering them with his body to protect his men. To, To maybe overuse this term here, we're talking split seconds again. Split seconds. One of those grenades detonates. Lucas absorbs the full blast of that grenade. Maybe. We'll come back to that. But... It, it doesn't impact any of these other guys. Only one of the grenades goes off miraculously. I guess the Japanese grenades had enough of a fail rate to where it's not crazy that one didn't go off. But nonetheless, that's certainly not something you're planning for. One of them goes off, throws Lucas back up in the air, lands on his back a little ways away from where the explosion took place. And if you've ever seen war movies, you're kind of picturing this, right? The body gets thrown up in the air and, and his guys look over there and Lucas has just taken over 200 pieces of shrapnel across his body. There's no body armor. He has a helmet on, but 200 pieces of shrapnel directly into his body. So he's dead, presumed dead. There's a, there's a one version of the story where he's still holding the, the second grenade in his hand because it didn't detonate. I don't know if that's true or not, but worth, worth bringing up here. Something that's worth saying before we go any further is that the volcano, if you, if you have a concrete floor and you place a grenade and you lay on top of that grenade, it might blow you in half. It like, I mean, it very likely will. The, the difference here is that with this volcanic ash, he's able to push it down in the sand. And I have to think that because of that, he was able to lay on top of this grenade as it went off and still got horribly peppered with shrapnel, searing hot pieces of metal ripping into his body. But he lived. His his guys that he was with thought he was dead, which wasn't crazy. He just absorbed a full blast of a grenade, got thrown on his back, and can't hardly breathe, let alone make any noise or move. But another group of Marines comes by and sees him. Now, as this second group of Marines sees that he's alive, they call a corpsman up, which is the the Navy attached. It's a Navy. It's medical personnel in the Navy that's attached to the Marine Corps and the term is corpsmen. So in the Army, you'd call them combat medics, and in, in the Marines, they're corpsmen. Um, corpsmen is called up. They start working on him and at the same time have to defend him against other Japanese soldiers that are coming in trying to uh, trying to kill this, this new group. 
Lucas is sent to the rear, evacuated, and undergoes a, we'll call it a series of surgeries. Um, I've seen 26 and I've seen 27, but e- either one of those shouldn't be shocking, right? We're talking 200 pieces of shrapnel, 200 plus pieces of shrapnel in his body. We'll come back to that as well, but he survives. Lucas survives, goes back home. And eight months later, about eight months later, yeah, it was October of 1945. You know, it's just pictures. I haven't seen a video of this, but looks to be in good shape is presented the Medal of Honor um, by President Truman, along with a couple of the Marines, notably his uh, his company commander during the Battle of Iwo Jima. So in October of 1945, he is still 17 years old. I don't understand how his body recovered from that much shrapnel to be able to function that soon after eight months. Eight months after, uh, after 200 pieces of shrapnel throughout his body. Now, something I wanted to come back to was there were, um, there's other little pieces of the story here. I mean, he's like a legend. So there's all of these little stories that are worth bringing up. Um, but I think require a lot more research to really dive into, to understand whether or not they are, um, 100% factual, I should say. Um, I also should say the, what I'm going to bring up here aren't necessarily stories coming from Lucas, but from, from other people. So one of them is that he set off metal detectors the rest of his life that some of these pieces of shrapnel were the size of 22 bullets. I mean, you're talking, how about uh, corn kernels or bigger? The other one was that he went on after this, again, survived the war, came back, awarded the Medal of Honor at the age of 17, went on to, he exited the military and then came back into the army and was a paratrooper and survived a jump where neither of his chutes functioned correctly. So to some degree, fell out of an airplane without a parachute. I mean, the chutes... I have to imagine did something to kind of slow his fall. Um, but he survived that survived a house fire, like house burning down in the middle of the night. There's even a report in here. I should probably do a little more reading on this one where his wife tried to kill him at one point as he got a little bit older. So Jack Lucas had quite the life and started pretty early enlisting in the Marines at the age of 14, forging signatures and paperwork to make it look like he was 17, just so he could get into the fight got into the fight by going AWOL to join the 26th Marines as they got ready to land on Iwo Jima. Lands on Iwo Jima five days after turning 17, and the next day jumps on two grenades to save his fellow Marines. Takes over 200 pieces of shrapnel, severely wounded, but survives, comes home, and in October of 1945 is awarded the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.